0: Isaiah 4-2 through the end of chapter 5, that's our text, so uh, get over there on your device or in your Bible so you can follow along. The topic, Isaiah pronounces six of 23 woes more than any other Old Testament prophet. The title of our message, I woe, I woe, it's off to woe I go. I I woe, I woe, I woe, I woe, I woe, I woe. Father, thank you so much for your word. I appreciate its ability, Lord, to discern between my soul and spirit. There's a place in our hearts, Lord, where only you can speak to us. I pray that we would listen intently, Lord, and learn what the spirit has to say to us individually and to our church. I guess what I'm saying, Lord, is make your word come alive in our hearing. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Amen. Chances are, you've not heard of Knowles Shaw. He was a 19th century evangelist, baptizing over 20,000. One biographer wrote, Crowds gathered in breathless expectation to hear the singing evangelist. In mostly small towns and congregations, he would mix sermons, delivered with great fervor, and hymns led with great skill. Shaw wrote about 58 hymns in several languages, including the classic bringing in the sheaves. Isaiah was a singing evangelist. We read, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Isaiah's beloved is the Lord. The vineyard is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. The song isn't joyful, it's woeful on account of the Jews having turned two idols from God. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God delights in singing joyful songs to you. Number two, God dislikes singing woeful songs to you. Let's take a look at joyful songs in chapter four. Another prophet, Zephaniah, said, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with joy singing i think it's safe to say that god sings to and about all believers not just israel and there's just something wonderfully endearing and actually precious about thinking that god is singing over us right now as a congregation he's singing over your life constantly and, and uh, you know music's such an important medium in our life is it not uh, and it can move us in many ways and though we can't hear it physically Spiritually, the Lord is trying to attenuate himself with us through this singing and bring us to a joyful relationship with him. Before Isaiah sang the woeful song of chapter 5, he gave his hearers a glimpse of their nation's joyful future. He announced characteristics of the kingdom of God on earth that we mostly refer to as the millennium or the millennial kingdom. We do that because it's going to last 1,000 years, annum, 1,000 years. It begins at the end of the great tribulation. Actually, Jesus ends the great tribulation with his second coming. And then the kingdom goes for a thousand years and then on into eternity. A remnant of Jews will be left in Jerusalem, the Lord having washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And so what he's talking about here looks beyond their captivity in Babylon to the time of the great tribulation when they would be finally wonderfully cleansed and receive Jesus as their savior. So beginning in verse two, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. We meet the branch of the Lord. Isaiah will explain the title more fully saying in chapter 11, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The branch is a person then who descends from the line of Jesse, the father of King David. And in the revelation, Jesus affirms, I am the root and the offspring of David. And so he is the branch that was uh, sent and planted, as it were, uh, that will bring forth the world's fruit. Uh, And so it's Jesus who's going to make the world fruitful again. The fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing during his thousand-year reign over the nations, The curse inflicted upon the earth as a result of Adam's sin will be lifted, at least in part. Isaiah records a lot of this. We'll see it as we go. But for example, in chapter 35, he says that the earth will break forth in abundance and desert places will produce rich vegetation. And so the earth will be restored uh, by the Lord and bring fruit in that time. Verse three, and it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. God always has a remnant. In the tribulation, we read in some of the other prophets that uh, two thirds rather of the Jews on the earth at that time will be killed, but one third will survive and they will thrive. And they will, it says here, be holy, rem, uh, meaning saved. So when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, verse four, and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Now that's a reserved, almost poetic description of the judgments of the great tribulation period that will bring the Jews to salvation. There are a handful of names for the great tribulation. The day of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of God, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of the end, the great day of his wrath, the hour of his judgment, the end of the world, the indignation, the time of trouble as never before. One name which ought to be more prominent is often unknown or unused by Christians. Jeremiah wrote and he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, That day is great, there is none like it. And so he's not talking about coming back from Babylon, he's talking about coming back from the great tribulation because it'll be a time of trouble like no other. And then he says this, it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. The purpose of the great tribulation is for God to renew his dealings with the nation of Israel finish bringing them to himself so that he can fulfill his promises to them. Now, obviously there will be Gentiles on the earth and, uh, and all during the great tribulation and the inhabitants of the earth will all be affected by it. But in terms of a purpose, it is about the nation of Israel. And I've, we always say here, very important, God has a plan for the ethnic descendants of Abraham that we call Israel or the Jews. And he has a separate plan, a different plan for the believers of the church age, whether they are Jew or Gentile. You cannot understand Bible prophecy if you confuse Israel with the church. It won't make any sense. So the Great Tribulation is not the time of the church's trouble. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. When the church has been removed and Jacob or Israel will be dealt with. Verse 5 Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. There will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime, from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. Now, you can't help but think of the exodus of Israel from Egypt reading these verses. Israel was protected and guided on their journey through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That type in Exodus will become reality in the millennium in that God will dwell among his people and he will fulfill every promise he made to Abraham's descendants. There was a Seinfeld in which Elaine's date asked her to shut up because his song came on the radio, Desperado. Since God sings over you, okay, now, we, we, we don't know what he's singing, but what do you, you might, as a meditation, as a, think, a thoughtfulness, looking on your Christian life right now, what do you think God would be singing? What, are the, what would at least be the themes that he would bring out? Uh, would it be more like a funeral dirge, or would it be, you know, something celebratory? It's just an interesting uh, thought process. Now, as we get into chapter 5, we'll see that God dislikes singing woeful songs to you. We don't know how often Isaiah sang his prophecies. I'd like to think he did it a lot. Because as I said a minute ago, music is a powerful media, right? We enjoy music. It moves us, we say. Some Christians disdain modern choruses, but many of them are straight out of the Bible. And and they're, they're beautiful. If they're not out of the Bible, they're inspired by it. I have a hard time memorizing anything, but I can remember Christian choruses. And so if I was stranded on the proverbial desert island, I could still sing. Uh, and, and most of those you know, come from the Bible. I, I can't help it, I really do have a bad memory. Uh, I, I've never been able to memorize scripture very well. Um, my friend, Pastor John Mayer, who comes here and shares music on Wednesday nights once or twice a month, uh, we'll get to talking about our messages on Sunday. He said, two weeks ago when you were in such and such, you said this. I go, really? Yeah, he goes, what was the name of that message? I said, I don't know. but It's written down somewhere. I mean, and, you know, people think I'm joking, but uh, I barely remember your name. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's tough. You know, you remember that, uh, that ad long ago? This is your brain on drugs? What can I say? I'm not happy about it, it's just a reality. If you want me to talk to your children, I will. Or you can just bring them in on a Sunday and say, this is what happens. If you do drugs, you know, so. There's always that, I know we don't have time to talk about this, but uh, never mind. Verse one of chapter five. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard. No, on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, and he also made a wine press in it. The first time someone described something to me as turnkey, I was stumped. It is used of a product or of a service that is 100% ready to go out of the box, you might say. There's nothing you have to do. You just, if it's, you know, you buy a new car, you just get in and drive. They give you the key, you turn the key. Of course, you don't do that anymore. You push a stupid button, but uh, you you turn the key and you're on your way. Our initial, uh, rather, Judah was planted in a 100% ready vineyard. There was nothing for them to do except enjoy the Lord and bear fruit. It wasn't like when you buy a home home. You know, you buy these new tract homes and they, it's a big deal if they give you a front lawn. But then the backyard is all full of contractor junk, you know, and stuff. And you had to put in your own backyard. Not turnkey. And so, but this vineyard was turnkey. The only thing that was, they were expected to do was enjoy the Lord and bear fruit. Fruit is not produced by effort. It comes naturally, or in this case supernaturally, by abiding in the vine. And so this is a great, great uh, metaphor of what God had done for his people. Now, our initial reaction sometimes to the vineyard metaphor is to think that it's up to us to procure the land and then figure out how to clear it of obstacles and build a tower. I could just see the book, How to Clear Out Your Vineyard in 12 Steps. Uh, I mean, that's what we do. The Apostle Paul referred to it as our beginning the Christian life in the Spirit and then trying to be made perfect by the flesh. God says, abide in me, bear fruit. And we say, all right, let's go to Lowe's and get the fertilizer and it's going to be heavy and it's going to take time. And, you know, that pruning hurts and all of that. And we always bring it back to ourselves. God says, no, I've, I've done everything. Why don't you enjoy me and bear fruit? Jesus said it is finished. We're to bear fruit. That's all. Now, do we let go and let God? No. We day by day deliberately yield to the spirit by whom we obey the word. That's hardly letting go. Our spiritual passion ought to have us praying without ceasing, running the race without the weight of sin, straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we ought to be excited about our vineyard. And we ought to do everything uh, necessary to bring forth fruit, realizing that that's the Lord's work and we are to just abide in him. Alan Redpath's insight on this, he said, give up the struggle and the fight. Relax in the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus. Look up into his lovely face as you behold him. He will transform you into his likeness. You do the beholding. He does the transforming. There is no shortcut to holiness. And so I like that because Redpath acts like there's nothing for you to do except behold the Lord, but he acts like that's something you must do. And, and, you know, we choose whether or not we're going to fellowship with the Lord, whether we're going to wait on the Lord, whether we're going to obey the Lord. And it is in those choices, empowered by the indwelling spirit, that we then bear fruit. uh, Verse 2 goes on to say, So he expected it to bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes." Wild grapes is an illustrative summary of verses 8 through 23. Those verses are going to show us the wild life in the flesh that the Jews chose over the fruitful life in the spirit uh, that God offered them. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, Did it bring forth wild grapes? Now, I've been careful every week to remind us that there are things in Isaiah that are only pertinent to the nation of Israel, but there are other things that are pertinent to all the children of God, all believers of all time. For example, God gets blamed for the evil in this world, does he not? Why did God allow this? Why didn't he do something? It's an all too common complaint. God the Father here says, what more could have been done Than I have done, and this is a tremendous, compassion-filled statement. Uh, It just really stunned me this week, just to think about the Lord saying this. And so, maybe you're here this morning. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because some terrible things have happened in your life. You've been mistreated. Um, You have a disease. People who you love have died. You know, whatever it might be that is unfair. God would say to you with compassion, what more could I have done than I have done? And what he's talking about is the fact that he recognizes the fruit of sin. He sees disease and death and darkness and understands that it has to be dealt with. And the way he dealt with it is by coming as a man, by becoming God in human flesh, dying on the cross, rising from the dead three days later so that you could have eternal life. And so when somebody says, well, what could, what more, you know, I want God to do this and this, God would say, no, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son that whoever believes in him uh, would not perish but have everlasting life. You say, well, I, I, I don't like this sin thing. I, you know, what do I care about what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? Well, you're in Adam and Eve, the Bible says. As his descendants, he passes down that sin. And you say, well, that's terrible, Until you realize that you can also identify with Jesus Christ. And identifying with him instead of Adam, you're saved from your sin. Uh, And so God's God's done everything that is supernaturally possible for him to do. And all that he's doing now is waiting for more people to get saved, which is a compassionate thing. And so when people are questioning, I mean, you have to be careful. Sometimes you just need to let it go until they're ready to hear it. But when people are sincere about, hey, what's going on? You can say, you know, God said, what more can I do than I've done? And it's all wrapped up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Just from the get-go, can you begin to fathom God becoming man and being the God-man for eternity? That's how much he loves us. Verse 5, and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'm going to take away its hedge, it'll be burned, break down its wall, it shall be trampled down, I'll lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns, I will command the clouds that they rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah are his pleasant plant, he looked for justice, but behold oppression for righteousness, but behold a cry for help. Judah ought to have modeled and exemplified justice and righteousness to the surrounding nations because she did not. A nation would conquer Judah. That nation would be Babylon, leaving Jerusalem in the condition described, ruined. And God said, even I am going to join in and not bring any rain. And, and so, you know, a lot of times people, they want to deal with God and, and think, well, God would never do this. Uh, you know, And Israel was, or Judah was counting on God not allowing them to be destroyed because the temple was in Jerusalem. And God says, I am going to wipe out my vineyard because of your injustice. We mostly think of our one-on-one relationship with the Lord, but we must also think of our nation's relationship to the Lord. And so now we enter into the woes, a series of six woes, more than in any other chapter of the Bible. And as I said uh, Isaiah is sort of prophecies man manna woe, you might say. You know, he just uh, always pronouncing woes on the Jews. And so verse eight, woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. There is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. 10 acres of vineyard shall yield one bath and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. So the wealthier, more uh, prosperous Jews would take advantage of the misfortune of others. Trouble and tragedy can bring out the best, can it not? We saw that a little bit after 9-11, the best of America pulling together and all. But it can also bring out the worst in people, as you see whenever there's a toilet paper shortage Uh, and people are gonna murder each other over toilet paper. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue till midnight, uh, till wine inflames them, the harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute, and the wine are in their feasts. <laughs> this could be in almost any secular college, university handbook, and some Christian ones, describing student life on campus. Oh, student life, we, you, kids are going to rise early in the morning and start drinking and end their day in reverie. You know, when my kids were getting ready to graduate high school, it was widely known that Cuesta College was the preferred destination for many Kings and Tulare County uh, graduating seniors. Uh, Different families would get together and they would rent off campus housing for their students. Four or five, six at a time would live there. It wasn't to have quiet so they could study. Let me just say that. It was to party. Uh, As uh, the Joker said in the first Batman, Comenzo Festival, meaning let's get this party started. But they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. I get asked about drinking all the time. You can drink, but there are a lot of buts to consider. For example, drinking alcohol past a certain point relaxes your moral inhibitions. People say and do things they wouldn't normally do, things they shouldn't do. A believer ought to have a heightened sense of morality, remain spiritually awake, not the opposite. Uh, and so my approach to drinking is to say, hey, you know, uh, I, I, I would like to say you can't drink, but I can't, uh, so let's talk about, let's put it in a perspective of, of how it can harm you. And um, so if you're a drinker, and on it, being honest with yourself, if you drink and you think, yeah, I like to drink because it, it loosens my inhibitions and I can, you know, kind of uh, not be as on guard as I am, you're headed in the wrong direction, Brother or sister, and so just be careful. The Lord says, "Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit." And so that's the answer. And uh, you always want to be awake and alert and alive to what the Lord is doing in your life. Verse thirteen: Therefore, my people have gone into captivity; they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished; their multitude dried up with thirst. Instead of drunken feasting, they would experience hunger and thirst leading up to and during their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. In verse 13, in the New King James Version, if you eliminate the italicized words that are added by translators to make the sentence flow, it reads, because no knowledge. And when Paul talks about this in the New Testament, he says that people don't like to retain the knowledge of God. In other words, we want to push God away and not have to think about him whatever people say, when Christmas time comes around and they, they attack the manger scenes on public grounds or even on private grounds, uh, part of it is because they don't want to see, retain God in their knowledge. Because when you see Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, it, it's, you know, it's a reminder that God came into this world to save sinners and sinners don't like that and so they want to ban that they want to get rid of that they say it's constitutional but it's because they don't want to think about god and because it's it's painful to think about god and so they don't want to retain him in their knowledge verse 14 sheol has enlarged itself opened its mouth beyond measure a lot of jews were going to die verses 14 and 15 verse 16 but the lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and god who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness God is gonna be known for righteousness and justice either by Judah's repentance or by her being disciplined. Uh, you know, people say, well, this is gonna uh, look bad on God's reputation. God doesn't care about his reputation. He is going to be known as the God of justice and righteousness, whatever his people do. Verse 17, then the lamb shall feed in their pasture and in the waste places of the fat one, strangers shall eat. The land would go to pasture for unattended flocks. Strangers would pillage the former large estates. Next, in verses 18 and 19, he talks about those who draw iniquity with cords. And, it, it, you know, and what he's talking about is that it's a picture of somebody tying themselves to an ox cart that is loaded down and like an ox, pulling it forward. That's how God sees the sin that they were involved in. And yet they said, let the Holy One draw near that we may know it. In other words, they were counting on him to keep his promises to Israel, even though they were far from him. And God had his ace in the hole. He says, I am gonna keep my promises to you in the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. I'm not gonna do it now, uh, and you're going to Babylon. And so it's a very interesting uh, touch and go here between the Lord and his people. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Billy Graham said, we have changed our moral code to fit our behavior instead of changing our behavior to harmonize with our moral code. Nothing is firm today, he said. Things no longer need to make sense. That's the world we live in, right? Uh, recently, a senator asked the Supreme Court nominee to define the word "woman." She said, "I can't." Congratulations, you're on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, you know what, what? Okay. We are legalizing just about everything that is biblically immoral. It's not just allowed or rec- it's it's legalized, and so um, you know we're headed. As I keep saying, we're headed in the same direction that Judah was. And that is judgment. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. In upcoming chapters, Judah will make alliances with other nations, trusting them over God. Do you have alliances with the world? Are you looking for help that the Lord has promised, but from other sources? Do you reject the counsel of the Lord? You know the Holy Spirit, who is God, is your comforter and counselor if you're a Christian. I don't know why you would come to me, let's say, and ask me a question if the Holy Spirit indwells you. Now, we talk to people, we love to talk to them, and there's room for advice and counsel and all, but it really should just be to put people's eyes back on the Lord and on the Word. Any kind of really great Christian counseling is just getting into God's Word. It's discipleship, right? And so, but generally speaking, you know, people say, oh, you guys, you know, you you don't see the benefits of all these modern uh, advances. All I'm saying is that God lives in you if you're a Christian and he's a counselor. And so maybe you should talk to him and maybe he'll tell you what to do. And um, you know, as you're discipled at church and by other means, uh, it all kind of comes together. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine who to, uh, are valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Why do we care so much about who can drink the most, right? Right? Drinking games, and I can I drink you under the table. Okay, that sounds great. I've, I've been there. You know what's under the table? Vomit. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, how, how was last night? i, I puked all over myself. Uh, let's, get it, let's go out tonight and do it again. But, uh, you know, I, I know what's going on. The leaders were mighty, valiant drunkards. <laughs> It softened them up to accept bribes. The woes are now over and Isaiah brings it home. Verse 24, therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised, the, uh, despised rather the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them. And the hills trembled, their carcasses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. In the 6th century BC, Babylon would ruin Jerusalem. There would be corpses in the street and ruin everywhere. During the time of Jacob's trouble, Babylon will again target the Jews. You can read about uh, a religious and a metropolitan Babylon in chapter 17 and 18 of the Revelation. Verse 26, he will lift a banner to the nations from the far, whistle to them from the end of the earth, and they shall come with speed swiftly. This is an interesting imagery. It's as if Israel has been protected and is almost hidden from other nations because of God's protection, like a cone of silence or a, you know, like a Wakanda thing you know, where nobody knows they're there. And then God says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna put a banner over where you are and I'm gonna to whistle to these other nations, you know. What kind of whistle must God have? Huh? Have you thought about that? You ever get into a bad windstorm? I mean, where it's like that? God can some of you guys can and gals can whistle pretty. I was gonna let you do it, but I, I think it'd be irreverent, so quit thinking that. Verse twenty seven through thirty. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt on their loins be loose, nor the strap of their sandals broken. Their arrows will be sharp, their bows bent, their horses' hooves will seem like flint, wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions, roar and lay hold of their prey, carry it away safely, and no one will deliver. In that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened by the clouds. I can't imagine anything worse than that, right? I mean, God says, all of a sudden, it's gonna be like all of this at once. It's as if you stumbled upon a lion's den and they started roaring. Even at the zoo, when the lion roars, I I wanna leave, you know? I'm thinking somebody's gonna leave that door unlocked and he's coming for me. I've seen the ghost in the darkness. I know what happens. But anyway... (laughs) This final dirge has the feel of Boromir's classic description of Mordor in the Fellowship of the Ring, only it's worse. Remember the hit song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? That's yeah, going to be in your mind all day now. Sorry about that. We talk about the pursuit of happiness, but as believers we are told to pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's in Hebrews 12. The Apostle Peter wrote, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in everything, in your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Holy simply means to be set apart. When you were saved, Jesus set you apart from the world for himself. He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He gave you the gift of God the Holy Spirit to indwell you the permanent gift of God the Holy Spirit to indwell you, not just to come upon you or to lead you or guide you, but to be in you. Therefore, you are enabled to obey him and you are empowered to serve him. By his grace, you can hear him singing with joy in the sense that uh, he leads, guides, directs, and all the other ministries that the Spirit has in your life. And so we are to pursue holiness, So we would sing, no woes, be holy. Let's pray.